want us to continue this morning our series out of the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We're up now to the 13th message, uh, the 11th chapter. And this morning I want to cover a message entitled, The Bride of Christ is Worthy of Our Devotion. So if you would take your copy of the scripture and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, we will read through most, uh, most all of the chapter. Uh, mainly today we will be addressing the first point I'm going to make in the message later on. Uh, that first point is where we will spend the majority of our time this morning just due to the, the shortness of the hour. But uh, pick up reading with me in verse 1. Paul said, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat. Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if somebody makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. 
are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for the church. In fact, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, I pray that we might this morning examine our devotion to your bride, the church. Our devotion to the kingdom of God and the things of the kingdom of God. And that we might honestly evaluate where our love and devotion is. Father, open our hearts and minds to understand this chapter today. We thank you for the heart of the Apostle Paul. Who is willing to spare nothing that he might make the name of Christ known. God grant it that we would be more like that in the contemporary uh, culture in which we live. And Lord, I pray that if there's even one here today who knows not Christ, that your Holy Spirit would move on their hearts in such a way that you would draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus and that even today they might be saved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Recently it was in the news that the man who played the professor on Gilligan's Island, Russell Johnson, he died at 89 years of age. Now folks, I think all of us in here today know the story of Gilligan's Island and the castaways there on that deserted island and how they were trying uh, to get off in that show. For so many years they were trying to be rescued. And as I thought about Gilligan's Island, I thought of a humorous story that I read recently about a man being stranded on a deserted island. He was the only one there. And he was stranded for some years before he was rescued. And when he was rescued, his rescuer said, Now are you sure you're the only one on the island? He said, Yes, I'm the only one. They said, Well, we noticed that there are three grass huts. He said, yes. Well, tell us about that. Tell us why there are three, not one, if you're the only one. He said, well, that's easy. One of them is my home and the other is my church. He said, okay, that's simple enough. But what about the third one? He said, oh, that's the church that I used to go to. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, we know that the church has often dealt with fightings and divisions. That's one reason I'm so grateful for this fellowship. We've not had to experience that. An older, wiser pastor once told me something that so far he's been spot on concerning. He said, Scott, every time you see the name friendship in a church or love, or unity, or united love, you can almost be certain that that church comes out of a church split. Because they said in our previous fellowship, we didn't have any love, and so we want to be love Baptist. Or we didn't have any unity, so we want to be unity Baptist. And I think tragically that's true in just about all the churches with those words in it that I know of, they've come out of a church split. Well, folks, it's tragic that down through church history, fighting and division has been too much a part of the history of the church. As we turn to 2 Corinthians 11 this morning, we see that that that's what Paul is addressing here. We need to understand that Paul is addressing division. And there's something that you and I need to understand about 2 Corinthians as we read it. And if we don't understand this, we'll miss much about the message of the book. Paul is continually bouncing between two different groups and situations that he's addressing. We know that 2 Corinthians is by far the most personable of all of Paul's letters. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his ministry. And he's defending his apostleship. And he's addressing division that has come into the church there at Corinth. Now on the one hand, Paul is addressing those whom he loves and values. And on the other hand, he'll turn and address those who are causing difficulty in the fellowship. And as you read through the book, you've got to understand that you're continually bouncing between one group to the next. And of course, Paul's main concern is that the group whom he considers to be the true church not be led astray by the other group. That's not simply a matter that the hostile group didn't get along with Paul. It's that Paul is genuinely convinced that they're not even believers. You see, he's witnessed an outside group come into the church there at Corinth and from day one, it's like their entire agenda has been to undermine the gospel of Christ that Paul has preached. And so he's not just addressing people that he doesn't like. He's not making it personal in that way. He's addressing people that he truly believes are trying to preach an entirely different gospel at Corinth. And they're trying to poison the fellowship there. If we don't understand that, we're going to miss the message of 2 Corinthians. Now this group was the Judaizers or a group much like them. The Judaizers were legalists who would find out where Paul had had been on a missionary journey and where he had preached the gospel and planted a church. And once Paul would leave, the Judaizers would go into that fellowship. 
And they would say it's not enough to trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. But you need to also keep all of the Old Testament laws and all of the males in the fellowship need to be circumcised. And you need to live according to all of the regulations in the Mosaic law. And so essentially, they were saying you needed something more than Jesus. A Jesus alone, salvation is not adequate. You need a Jesus plus something else salvation and unfortunately we find people like that today people like that today who will try to not only point us to faith in Christ but then they'll try to come along and try to add human works that somehow or another we need to we need to attempt to earn our way to God or deserve the salvation that we have and they'll take our hearts away from the simplicity of the gospel Well, folks, as Paul said to the Galatians, that kind of gospel is no gospel at all. And we need to understand that today. Now, Paul would hear this going on, and so he would try to reconnect with this church. And what he would find there is that the Judaizers had not only gotten that fellowship to disregard the gospel, but they had also tried to get that fellowship to reject Paul. You see, if you can reject the man, then you can reject his message. And so he would, try to, he would find that they tried to do both. And so Paul is addressing a very dangerous group here. And what's disturbing Paul is that the Corinthians seem to be giving this group a hearing. Now in chapter 11, Paul's returning to this theme of addressing the Judaizers. And you find a lot of sarcasm in this chapter. I call it sanctified sarcasm. Paul is taking what this group is saying and he's trying to turn it around and use it against them. Now again, what we see in this chapter, Paul is defending his apostleship. But more than that, Paul is defending the truth. And what we learn in this chapter today is that there are some things in life that are worth fighting for. Now there are some things in life that are not worth fighting for. I mean it's, it's no doubt in my mind that a pit bull can whip a skunk but you got to ask is it really worth it? But there are some things that are worth fighting for and the gospel is one of those things and the church of Jesus Christ is one of those things worth fighting for. I want you to see three things with me this morning. Again, we're going to spend most of our time in this first point, but I want you to see jealousy over the church. Paul says there in verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now again, we need to understand what's going on here so we can understand Paul's approach. On the one hand, while the false group was always bragging about who they were and what they had done, Paul didn't boast about himself or his credentials. 
You'll recall that the Apostle Paul said, if I'm going to boast, I'm only going to boast in the cross of Christ. But these false apostles were saying, because Paul is not boasting about his accomplishments, he must not be a genuine apostle. He must not be the real deal. And so Paul would say, okay, I'll play that game. If they think they've got something to boast about, I can boast about some things too. And so he would boast a little bit. And then the false apostles would say, see there, he's not genuine because he's boasting. He's not genuine because he's not boasting. And now that he's boasting, he's not genuine because he is boasting. And so Paul couldn't win with this group. And so in verse 1, Paul is saying, just bear with me a little bit. I know all of this is so foolish, and I shouldn't have to talk to you like this, but just bear with me. Truth of the matter is, he's a little little bit upset by what's going on there at Corinth. As he said earlier on in this letter, his life had been an open book to them. He came and, and bared his soul to them when the church was planted. He invested his very life into the Corinthians. And now here comes along this other group. And it's like he's having to go back and reprove himself to the Corinthians all over again. Now Paul describes himself here as a spiritual father. A spiritual father to the Corinthians who had betrothed them to one husband. That one husband, of course, being Jesus Christ. Folks, we need to understand something about betrothals in ancient times. In ancient times, a betrothal was the engagement period. But if anything, it was a lot stronger than our modern day engagements. You see, during the period of the the betrothal, the husband would continue to live with his family and the wife-to-be would continue to live with her family until the wedding day. But even though they lived separately, if they were betrothed to one another, society considered them a married couple already. Now they didn't, they didn't go about any type of physical intimacy and again like I say they lived separately but they were viewed as being a married couple. In fact they were considered this way to the point that in ancient times if you tried to break off the engagement you actually had to give a letter of divorce. That's how strong it was. Paul said, I'm like that. I'm like a a spiritual father, like a a daddy who has a daughter, who has a child. And and this daughter of mine is promised to one husband. I've betrothed her to one husband. Now, of course, we know that the Bible describes us as the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. That's just one of the the rich symbols that the scripture uses to describe our relationship to the Lord Jesus. We are the bride of Christ and we are betrothed to him until that day that Jesus Christ comes again for his bride. And when he comes again for his bride and gathers us up to himself in heaven, the Bible says the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place at that point. Well, just like in an ancient betrothal, 
It was the responsibility of the husband-to-be and the responsibility of the wife-to-be to keep themselves clean and pure. And on top of both of them making a pledge to keep themselves clean and pure, the daddy of the bride would also try to protect his daughter so that no other young man would come along and try to steal her away from the one to whom she was betrothed and also so that the betrothed wouldn't try to pull anything with her. It's kind of like that country and western song. You know that song where that daddy's sitting on the front porch cleaning his gun and and the date comes over to pick up his daughter and he says, now, never mind me, y'all just go on out and have a good time. I'll just be sitting here cleaning my gun and when you get back, I'll be sitting here cleaning my gun. In other words, young man, you better not try anything with my daughter. One writer said, you know what, he kind of felt like with his daughter and the date, when her date came together, he said, I felt like I was handing over a million dollar Stradivarius to a gorilla. Well, Paul says to the Corinthians, spiritually I'm your father, I've promised you to Christ. And it's my job to help look after you and keep you pure until Christ comes back. It's Paul's job to watch over them and care for their souls. And it's their job to keep clean and pure. Now a modern day application of this is that as a pastor, I'm supposed to be teaching you the word of God and protecting you against false doctrine, against heresy. And in so doing, I'm getting you ready for your wedding day. Right now, as you well know, Connie and I are getting ready for Melinda's wedding day in June. And men, you know how this works, right? The ladies say, hey, just just stay out of the way. You know, the the mother of the bride and the bride, they go out and get everything ready. And they say, just just stay out of the way, but open your wallet wide because we're going to be coming to you. Men, you know the routine, don't you? That's kind of the way it works. But that's not how Paul said that he was a spiritual father or spiritual leader to the Corinthians. It wasn't his role to stay out of the way. He's supposed to be protecting them from would-be spiritual predators. Paul said, I am jealous for you. I've got a godly jealousy over the church, over the bride of Christ. Now today, we know that we don't view jealousy as a good thing, but but biblically, there's a jealousy that's a good thing. In the book of Exodus, God told the children of Israel that He was jealous for them. He was not jealous of them, but for them. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that as far as our love goes, our love is not to be jealous. It means that we're not to be jealous of others. We aren't to be jealous of others in the sense that we ruin relationships. But we should be jealous for others. For instance, we're jealous for our children that they come to faith in Christ. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, we're jealous for them to stay faithful to Christ. We're jealous for the church that we would always have a ministry of honesty and integrity and a ministry that honors Jesus Christ and lifts His name high because He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. 
And so we're jealous for the integrity of the church. Jealous for those that have come to Christ. We don't want anything happening to anyone that would take their devotion away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses this term jealousy. He says, I'm jealous for you. I want to see you stay faithful to the Lord. Folks, it ought to be the goal of every believer to always be faithful to Christ. And you know, if we're going to be found faithful, we've got to give attention to the relationship. We've got to maintain it. I use an analogy when I'm doing uh, marriage counseling, premarital counseling with the couple. And and I'll tell them, you know, once you get married, you're going to have to go through the years and do some things to maintain the relationship. You know how we are when we're dating. Boy, we put our best foot forward, don't we? Women get in front of the mirror and they primp getting ready for the date. You know what? I think some of the men do that too, don't they? And I'll tell a couple, I'll say, you know, spiritually, uh, we know that when it, when it comes to a, marriage, a literal marriage relationship, we know that appearances aren't everything. But I'll tell them, I'll say, one thing you need to do in your marriage, you need to maintain your appearance for one another, and that's just a symbol of maintaining everything. But I say, for example, in, in, in that engagement period, in that dating period, you're concerned to look just right, but, but you get married and you just kind of get in a rut and you just don't care about your appearance anymore, do you? I mean, the husband will come home, he'll go out best to the world, come home, put on an old ratty t-shirt, dirty t-shirt, and the wife will come downstairs wearing a robe, looks like the dog slept on last night. And I'll say, you know what, though appearances aren't primary, your mate wants you to look nice for him. You've got to maintain your appearance. And and again, that's an analogy. You've got to maintain everything in your relationship. You just can't let things go. You've got to stay close to one another. And you know, spiritually speaking, we've got to do the same in our relationship to Christ, haven't we? We've got to be jealous for our relationship and the relationship of others. We've got to maintain that love for the Lord Jesus. James in James chapter 4 promises us that if we will draw near to God, He'll draw near to us. Oswald Sanders said on one occasion, you're as close to God right now as you want to be. We've got to maintain our love for Jesus Christ and be jealous for that. Remember what the Lord chastened the church at Ephesus for in Revelation 2? They had lost their first love. Now he said to the church there at Ephesus, he said, you're you're still maintaining all of your labor. You're doing all the right things. But he said, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You've taken a great fall and you need to go back and do the things that you did at first. Do you need to do that today? You remember how it was when you came to faith in Jesus Christ? And boy, you were just, that, that love relationship with Christ was so new and so fresh. And you were so excited about being saved. And that peace that you felt in your heart, I mean, it felt so great. And through the years, you just kind of lost that. You need to keep that first love. 
God said through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 2, He said, what happened to you? What happened to Israel and Judah? When I led you out of Egypt, out into the wilderness, you followed me like a young bride and you loved me and you obeyed me. But then something happened. When I led you into the promised land and gave you the promised land and all the provision thereof, you grew cold in your relationship to me and you started chasing after the gods of the Canaanites that are no gods at all. And what you've done, you've forsaken the fountain of living waters and you've dug out for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Folks, we've got to maintain that love. And Paul was concerned that the Corinthians would do that. He's saying, I'm jealous for you in this regard. I'm jealous for you because I've wed you to Christ. But these Judaizers have come along and influenced you and you've gone astray. You've committed spiritual adultery. He said, if someone proclaims to you another Jesus or a different spirit or a different gospel than what we preached, you're all too ready to accept them. They were like a wife who goes out with her husband to an expensive restaurant and when they get out to that nice restaurant, she's scanning the joint trying to find another man that she could go home with. Paul said, that's kind of how you've been. I betrothed you to one uh, one bridegroom, Jesus, but you've gone astray. And he goes on to say here, it's like Eve. I fear that what happened to Eve, when Eve was deceived by the serpent, you too have been deceived. Folks, you remember what happened in Genesis 3 when Satan came to, to Eve in the garden. The devil came along and he questioned God's word and he changed God's word and he denied God's word. He said, Eve, has God said this? And she said, no, this is what God said. And, and, and the devil said, God didn't mean that. Because God knows in the day that you eat of this fruit, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God. And boy, he painted that forbidden fruit as looking so attractive and something that she needed. If she and Adam were going to be all that they could be, boy, they needed this. They needed the very thing that God had told them they couldn't have. I want you to think about Adam and Eve in the garden for a minute. Boy, they had it good, didn't they? I mean, life was good. Think about life before the fall. God had created everything perfect, put them in that perfect environment. Think about how that must have been. Eve never had to hear Adam say, you don't cook like my mama. (laughs) And guys, think of this too. Adam never had to hear Eve say, honey, I just don't have a thing in the world to wear. I mean, it was a perfect environment. And then what happened? The devil came along and deceived them, painted God out to be stingy. And God is keeping you from something that you actually need in life. And what's the devil doing today? He's doing the very same thing. He's wanting people to think that they don't need God. They can have their own eyes open. They can be their own authority. They can be their own God. And that's exactly how most of the masses of humanity are living today. I mean, who needs God, they think? People are so deceived today, just like Eve. 
And Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm worried that something like that has happened to you. Here you are ready to trust Christ, but then you're thinking now that He might not be sufficient. What do people do today? They believe the same thing. If they turn to Christianity at all, many will think Christ alone may not may not be enough. I need Christ plus something else. I need to earn my salvation. Or then somebody else comes along and they say, wait a minute Christians, you also need to believe such and such. And sadly there are a lot of people who will go astray in their faith. They either go astray believing nothing at all, that's the big one today, or they fall into some type of maybe an eastern mysticism type trap. Or hyper-legalism or something of that nature. They leave Christ. Folks, we've got to be careful that we maintain our love relationship with Jesus Christ. And we grow in our Christian faith. Paul says, you know these guys that you're listening to, let's just call them super apostles. He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. He's being sarcastic about how the Judaizers are acting. But he said, you know, I'm not any less than they are. Some of them might be mighty good with words. Better than I am with words as a matter of fact. But I consider myself to be more knowledgeable. Than them, what he's saying there is I'm more grounded doctrinally than they are. But folks, what's the what's the takeaway point for us today? We've got to beware of slick communicators who might come along pretending to give some kind of spiritual talk. I mean, you can go home this afternoon and and if you've got a whole bunch of stations on your TV, you can probably find somebody giving a spiritual talk. And it might be a godly pastor who, thank the Lord, he's preaching the Word of God. But you know what? You can probably find others too who have gone doctrinally astray. And think of the masses that are going that direction today. We've got to be careful who we listen to today. Does it match up with God's Word? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired, it's God-breed, and it's profitable for doctrine, teaching, correction, and reproof that the man or the woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What kind of messages am I listening to? Do those messages line up with the Word of God or is it a different message? You and I have been betrothed to Christ and we need to be jealous of our relationship and jealous of others and jealous for the church that in that day when we stand before the Bema Seat of Christ we can hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Be jealous. For authentic Christianity and the integrity of your faith. Paul was jealous for them. There's wolves out there. Don't kid yourself that there's not. There's wolves out there. There's spiritual predators out there. Who today just like in Paul's day. Would like nothing more than to take your heart and mind away from Jesus Christ. Not only was he jealous for the church, but a second thing I want you to notice here is generosity toward the church. Generosity toward the church. 
Pick up in verse 7 with me. He says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He goes on to say, when I was in need, I let the Macedonians supply my need. I want you to notice what's going on in these verses. Now folks, this one's almost going to make you laugh, okay? You know why the false teachers were accusing Paul? They were getting the Corinthians to doubt Paul because he was not being paid for his ministry there at Corinth. We hear about some of the outlandish things about so-called ministers today. You know, they, they might have mega mansions that even some Hollywood movie stars don't have. And jets and limousines that they drive around in, fly around in. Every time we hear something like that, it discredits the ministry and people say that guy must be in it for only what he can get out of it. And we question some of those motives. Nobody in his church may, may know what he makes. Nobody in the church knows what, how the finances are done. There may be no, accountable to any, uh, no accountability to anybody. Folks, that's dangerous. Things like that maybe bother me more than they bother you because I'm in the ministry and when I hear guys doing things like that, it discredits the pastorate. It discredits the ministry. But the flip side of that coin, believe it or not, the Corinthians were being influenced by the Judaizers who were coming along. They weren't complaining about Paul making too much. They were saying he must not be the real deal because you're not paying him at all. Boy, now that's a twist, isn't it? I want you to understand something here. Back then, if you were important and had an important message, in the Greco-Roman world, if you were a speaker, you could demand very exorbitant wages. I mean, we think that's new with us today. I mean, we, we hear today maybe a president, once he leaves the White House, he writes a book and maybe it's a multi-million dollar book deal and then every speech that he makes, he makes maybe at least $100,000 for every speech that he delivers and we think that's new in our culture today. It's not new in our culture at all. The Greeks and the Romans were famous for that kind of thing. In fact, in this culture back then, they said if a guy's important and he's got a valid message, he's got an important message, he's going to come to you and he's going to demand a lot of money so he can deliver that message to you. And so they were saying of the Apostle Paul, because he's coming to you and he's not charging anything, He must not be important and the message he's preaching about Jesus must not be important. Paul had said elsewhere to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 that a, a minister is worthy of his wages. He even said those who preach and teach and labor at that even worth double honor and double wages. But Paul had made a decision not to do that at Corinth because he knew they were such a picky little group 
And so he determined that number one, he was going to be what we would call today being bivocational. He was a tent maker and he was going to go there to Corinth, preach the gospel, plant a church, see that church grow, minister to the people in the city there. And he was going to do it all making wages off of his tent making uh, livelihood. And then on top of that, the Macedonian churches, churches like Philippi, they could make up any shortfall. Paul thought he was doing the Corinthians a favor. But the Judaizers come along and say he must not be the real deal. But folks, there's a principle here that I want you to understand that I think means a lot to you and me today. What was Paul trying to get at concerning his ministry there at Corinth? He was trying to show them generosity toward the church. And it makes me want to stop and ask the question, are you generous toward the church? Am I generous toward the church? I'm not talking about dollars and cents. I'm I'm talking about in all ways. How about with our time? How about with our talents, our spiritual gifts, Are we a blessing to the body of Christ? Do we use our time and energy and talents to build up the bride of Christ to be a blessing to the church? You see, it's more than just our resources. It's that too, but it's everything about us. Ask yourself that question, am I generous toward the church? What if an independent auditor came in and examined not only our financial books, but everything about our lives, how we use our time, things that we prioritize in our life? Would would that person find in me somebody who is passionate about the church, somebody who is generous to the church? Paul went there to Corinth and he tried to be generous toward them. What's important to you today? Is the gospel worth your efforts? Is it worth my efforts? Yes. You know, it grieved my heart again the other day reading a testimony from Tom Elleth who leads our International Mission Board. Southern Baptists were 16 million members strong. Now on a given Sunday we can only find 6 million of us. We don't know where the other 10 million are. But 16 million of us, we've got about 5,000 missionaries on foreign soil. And and what Tom Elliff was getting at, here are couples and here are families. They've gone to Richmond, Virginia. They've gone through the language schools and they've gone through the cultural training to get ready to go into that country wherever they've been appointed to be missionaries. And he said, we've got all these couples and families in the pike. They're ready to go. The training's done. We don't have the money to send them. We don't have the money to send them. 16 million strong. We don't have the money to send them. That's sad, isn't it, folks? And it's a testimony to you and me that we need to be generous toward God's work. God's work needs to be a priority, in it, not only with our pocketbooks, but in what we do with our time every week. Are we investing our lives in God's business? Are we generous with God or are we misers? Third thing I want you to see that Paul points out about his life. 
service to the church. Not only jealousy for the church and generosity toward the church, but service to the church. Look at what he says about halfway through verse 23. He says, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one... Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On and on he goes describing his service for the Lord. You know the problem with these false apostles? You know what they didn't have? They didn't have any scars in the ministry. No scars. Jesus had scars. Paul had scars. Jesus said in in, in John 14 to 16, addressing his disciples there in the upper room, I want you to understand something, guys, he said. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. Because the servant is not greater than the master. And what did they do with Jesus? Beat him, crucified him. How about Paul? Paul listened to the words well of Jesus in, in, in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said, no one can come after me and be my disciple unless he denies himself and picks up his cross and follows after me. You know what Paul did? Boy, he understood that message, didn't he? Paul carried his cross. He suffered for the Lord. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, No one who really wants to follow Christ will be able to escape persecution. Paul had scars in the ministry. These false teachers didn't. But Paul gives a litany here about his service to the Lord and, and, and what all he had done. And and how he had given his very life. And he's saying to the Corinthians, Corinthians, just look at how I've been a servant of Christ among you. There is no way that you could claim that what I have done has been self-serving. Because if anything, I've put myself out. I've suffered for your sake. And again, do we do that? Folks, we need to understand that what we're about here is life and death issues, eternal issues. We don't do this just so you and I have somewhere to come on Sunday morning, okay? If we were doing it just because we need somewhere to go on Sunday morning, we could probably find something better to do. But we've got a message to preach with eternal consequences. Do we believe that? Are we pouring our heart and soul, blood, sweat, and tears into our service for the Lord? You know, we live in a society today, tragically society. Our society is becoming a a taker society, just in it for what they can get out of it. I mean, it's becoming now almost the takers are more than the givers. And sometimes we even see that kind of mentality come over into the church, don't we? There'll be those in the church who just kind of want to sit back and say, Hey, minister to me, I want to enjoy everything. But they don't have any skin in the game, so to speak. And Paul is saying here, just like Jesus did, that we need to put some skin in the game. We need to be committed. We need to serve the Lord. Am I serving the Lord? 
Is ministry for what I can get out of it? Is church for what the church can do for me or for what I can do for the church and for the kingdom of God as I serve the church representing Jesus in that community? We need skin in the game. Commitment. Christians today, all could, can you imagine if Christians all over the nation the spiritual giftedness of the body of Christ, the resources we have, if everybody rolled up their sleeves and got involved and said, you know what, it's not what I do for self that counts, it's what I do for Jesus Christ, I'm going to give it my all. Can you imagine what we could accomplish in the American church today? I mean, here was a man who put himself out as he traveled about. And had suffered for the name of Jesus. Do you suffer any? Do I suffer any? Does our Christian faith ever cost us anything? And if it doesn't ever cost you anything. Then what kind of faith do you and I have? A commitment that costs. And you see what Paul is saying here to the church at Corinth. We need to love love the bride of Christ and be devoted to the bride of Christ because she's worthy. The church is the one thing that Jesus said, I will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But even more so than the church being worthy, we have a bridegroom who's worthy. Amen? He's worthy of our love and our devotion. That we would be jealous for His bride. Generous toward His bride. And service to His bride. Again, it's eternal things that are at stake. The lives of men and women and boys and girls that hang in the balance. What's your devotion? In closing, I want you to think with me about some things this morning. Are you jealous for the gospel with a godly jealousy? Jude 3 says that we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That word contend is the word from which we get our word agony. Sometimes it's like a wrestling match. It's difficult. It's hard. It may even involve opposition. But we've got to be jealous for God's truth. You see, Satan wants to erase or at least change the message. Why? Because Paul said in, in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all them that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The gospel is what? The power of God unto what? Salvation. That's as important as you get, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And so if Satan's going to come and attack something in our culture today, you know what he's going to go after? He's going to go after the gospel. Because again, it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. 
He wants to dilute that message or change that message just like he did in Genesis chapter 3. He wants to deceive us. Are you jealous for the gospel? Are you generous toward the church, the bride of Christ? Time, talents, everything. Are you generous? How about your service? Do you have skin in the game? Is it a service that is even costly if it needs to be? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these stirring words of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we look at his commitment. We look first, at all, first of all at what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, did for us. We look at what his servants, the apostles, like the Apostle Paul, what he did. Father, we pray that in 2014 today in the church all across America that we would indeed be jealous for the gospel and generous and that we would serve, that we would give it our all. Lord, help us to understand what's at stake. I pray that we would never have a cavalier attitude toward the gospel or the church. But Lord, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Lord, if there has been some way that we've been casual or cavalier or just half-hearted, forgive us. Restore that first love in our hearts. Renew us. Remind us every day that we've been betrothed to one husband, even Christ. May it be our passion and ambition that when we're called up to be with Him one day, we would hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to give it our all. Jesus said we need to serve while it is day because the night is coming when no man shall work. May we redeem the time because the days are evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe speaking to somebody here today who's not really a, a member of the bride. You're not the bride of Christ. Because you've never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know you need to. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been convicting you to make that decision. How about on the first stanza, you come out and come forward. I would love to pray with you about being saved. Coming to know Christ in a personal way. And then we want to help you grow in your faith. Maybe there are some others here looking for a church home. You want, you want a church home where you can join hand in hand, arm in arm with others as we serve Christ in this community. The very things I've talked about this morning, you, you want to do in a, in a local fellowship. You come forward as well. Maybe some others that just want to come to this altar in a public way and say, God, 
would you do a work of renewal in my heart that I won't be so cavalier about your work and about the gospel? Lord, I want your work to be strengthened in my own life. And I want it to be more passionate to me. God, do that in my heart. You just spend some time at the altar this morning. If that's how God's moving in your life.